Well, today we start a brand new sermon series that will take us all the way into hopefully warm weather. Um, we're going to go through the end of March with this series called Compelled. It comes from 2 Corinthians 5.14. Today I'm going to introduce the series to you of what inspired it. Some of you may be looking at this graphic and it may remind you of a few things, especially those um, the darker colored guys that look like they're kind of dancing. You may have seen something similar to that before. It is not inspired from this, this evolution of man graphic where you might recognize, and maybe it's going to come up, maybe it's not. They uh, said they were having some difficulties. There you go. It's not inspired from that. So draw a big X through that. That is not where this came from, okay? Uh, it is also, as much as you may know that I have this strange fondness for Bigfoot, it did not come from this either, even though there are some similarities, okay? So it's not that. Actually, my family will appreciate this. Maybe it was inspired from that time when Grandpa stepped in a hole and reached for his back. You remember that? Uh, so maybe that could look like him. Um, but no, the actual inspiration came months and months and months ago um, when James actually was giving his testimony through his elder process. And he mentioned the verse, the love of Christ compels me. And it was in that moment, I remember it distinctly, I was back in that room, and he said that, and it just hit me. And I went, man, the Lord is laying that on my heart. And so over the last several months, I've been processing that for myself. And when it came time to evaluate what should we learn in the new year, I realized that this is a great spot to start. And so the context of this verse, and if you haven't started to already, would you find 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Um, I don't believe I'm going to have the verses that I want to read on the screen today, so it's of great importance that you either have it to follow along or you uh, listen carefully when I do read it. But the context of this verse, we're actually going to start in verse 11, but verses 1 through 10 have some thoughts that we need to address before we read it. In verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, Paul is describing this side of eternity. Our bodies, he mentions, are temporary, and we have this longing for eternity with permanent, glorified bodies. And he reminds believers that God has given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of what is to come when this life is over. So it's a refreshing reminder that uh, although you may be in pain, you may be suffering right now, that all of this is temporary and we look forward to what God is going to do. And he promised that and he gave us a guarantee who is the Holy Spirit. Then in verses 6 through 10, Paul mentions that he is actually ready to go home and be with the Lord. Not because he wants to exit early, but because he knows the great hope that there is of being reunited or with God in glory. And so what he does is this excitement and this knowledge that he has, it brings him courage to be fearless. Fearless through all of the suffering and the pain that maybe you know Paul had to endure and he did endure. You see, Paul, because of this knowledge and realization of the love that God has for him, he wants all believers to be able to have an answer for their actions because believers are going to have to be accountable before God for their actions. It's not the, the argument that he has is not talking about your eternity. As a believer, your eternity is sealed. It's done. 
And so you are, this is not questioning whether or not your actions will be pleasing enough to gain you access to eternity with God. Jesus took care of all of that. What Paul is saying is that you still, as a believer, need to be accountable for your actions. Are your actions going to please God? And so he is saying to the Corinthians, I want my actions to be pleasing. I want to do what pleases Almighty God because of this great love that he has for me. And so that's the context. What I want to do now is I want to be able to read to you 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 21. Um, They are having some difficulties with the screen, so if all of a sudden my notes aren't on there or things like that, um, you may know why, but it looks like they're doing a great job. So if you are able to stand as we read, we're going to read from the passage that I mentioned. Therefore... Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You may be seated. There is a lot a lot that we could dive into in that passage. We are really going to make sure that you understand verse 14, okay? So if all of a sudden you leave here today going, I want more, that's great. There's a lot of studies, a lot of great resources on this passage, but we need to know the context. We're going to look at some of those surrounding things, but really our main focus today is the love of Christ compels us or controls us as we read. So I want you to see two realizations today, two realizations that prompt us to action. The very first one is verse 11. It says, the fear of the Lord. As a believer, the fear that maybe you once had before Christ was your savior, the fear of judgment, the fear of death, As a believer, that fear is gone because in Christ Jesus, we will not die. We are alive in Christ. Our eternity is sealed with him forever. So the fear that's referenced in verse 11 to the believer is not the one about your eternity. 
You should not have a fear of eternity because of Jesus Christ. The fear that's talking about is this account that we need to give. That we need to give. John Calvin says this: an account must one day be rendered before the judgment seat of Christ. For the man who seriously considers this must, of necessity, be touched with fear and shake off all negligence. You see, a holy, righteous God is one to be feared. He's respected because of his perfection and his power, and he holds all rights of judgment, and I'm guilty. But I know that because of Jesus Christ, I am no longer guilty. I am blameless. He took all of that guilt, all of that shame. And so what my fear of the Lord is from verse 11 and what yours as a believer should be is a healthy, reverent fear of the displeasure of Christ at the choices we have made. There should be a constant evaluation. Is what we're doing pleasing to Christ? Is what we are doing honorable to Christ? Our thoughts, our actions, our daily habits, are those things honorable to Christ? Do they cause us to go, what I'm doing right now or what I'm about to do, I will have to give an account to a righteous God and that brings a reverent fear to my life. We naturally respond by trying to fix these things. It's so natural for us to say, my actions then, I'm just going to have a checklist of all the good things I'm going to do. And we try to respond that way with, with good works. Or maybe we argue why our actions are not all that bad. If you're a parent, you know kids love to do this. But the, more, the older I get, the more that I see it in myself and adults, that we love to argue and defend why what we're doing isn't as bad as that person, or it's good because if I look at it from this angle, and we have all of these ways that we try to sell it and make excuses. But the reality is, is we can't. There has to be a standard. We can't make our case with any standard that we want. The standard is God. We see this in casual arguments like, who is the greatest basketball player of all time? How many of you have a different answer? Probably many. There's one right answer, right? I mean, we all know who that is. I'm not even going to say it. I'm just going to leave it in suspense. But some of you may have a really strong argument for this person because maybe all that your standard for evaluating who the greatest basketball player is, is championships. Or maybe it's scoring, all-time scoring leader. So maybe that person is your greatest. Maybe it's the best defender. Maybe it's whatever it might be, MVP awards. You might have a different category or standard than the person next to you. And so therefore, what is the right answer? We can't operate life that way. We can't operate our actions by saying, well, I'm going to evaluate them this way, and you evaluate them this way, and you evaluate them this way, and then in the end, we're all right, right? We can't do that. The standard is God. Do we have a healthy fear of the Lord, a reverent fear of the Lord that says, by your standard, here is how I am weighing all of my actions, my thoughts to know do they please you, Lord? So we can't get caught up in arguing our way to either salvation or whether we are good enough or not. Because on the playing field of life, there is no man on this plane who can achieve salvation, 
who can achieve pleasing God on our own. Jesus Christ as man is the only one who can go to the next plane. He came down from glory. He is in glory. It is all because of Christ. It's in him and through him. And it's really cool because even though we have all of these arguments and we have all of these defenses for our actions, look at verse 11 after it talks about the fear of the Lord. Do you see what it says? What we are is known to God. All of our excuses, all of our defenses, they don't matter. God knows you. And God knows you should not bring necessarily only fear to you. It should bring that reverent fear of, oh, I thought I was doing okay. I thought that I fooled the people around me. I thought I even fooled myself, but God knows me. He knows my thoughts. He knows every intimate detail. You are known by God. But how about the positive side of that too? You are known by God. He knows who you are and he loves you more than you could ever comprehend. And so that's the part that Paul is starting to get into. It's not about that outward appearance as he mentions. We used to regard people to the, according to the flesh. Jesus was actually regarded according to the flesh by mankind and he was rejected. So these outward appearances that man uses to figure out what standard are you good enough for us, those outward appearances mean nothing. You are known to God in the depth of who you are. And he loves you even though, man, do we make some mistakes. We are known to God. And so the question that all of that brings me to is verse 14. We ask this question. What's your motivation? Is it outward appearances? Are you just trying to look pretty? Some of us fail at that every day. But are you still trying to put on these outward things? You get up in the morning and maybe you have that verse on your, on your mirror and you feel really good while you read it, but you never take it to heart maybe. Maybe it's just this checklist of things that if you buy a coworker coffee on your way to work, then you are doing great. You are a wonderful human being. And those are great things, but is that the list that you're operating from? Do you have a checklist of outward things that's motivating you, that's driving you? Or is your motivation what verse 14 tells us it should be, which is the love of Christ? The love of Christ is what motivates us. You see, this phrase, the love of Christ, could actually be interpreted two ways. Christ's love for people or our love for Christ. Either one provides motivation to take the gospel to distant lands in the face of opposition. The great love of Christ was such that Christ died for all people. And so what Paul is saying is that Paul's love for Christ was such that he was willing to die for self. He recognized the great power of God's love, of Christ's love for him. And so his response is, I will do exactly the same. I will give my life, my everything to him because of his great love for me. That's what Paul is saying. Paul recognizes the great overwhelming love that he has received and it compels him to serve others. And so as believers, the, the love of Christ should prompt us to give something, to give everything, because that's exactly what he gave us, is everything. So I want to look at that word, 
compels. In the translation that I read from the ESV, it uses the word controls us. Verse 14 is what we're looking at. So I mentioned that grammatically, the structure of this could mean the love that we have for Christ, but also the love that Christ has for us. And what we recognize is that since Paul is speaking of what Christ has done for him by dying in his place, his primary reference in this passage and this meaning is the love that comes from Christ to us. However, Christ's initiating love evokes our love for Christ and then for others, and thus it controls our desires and our relationships with others, and it enables us more and more to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this idea is illustrated in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, and I want to read to you that passage, because this is exactly what it's talking about. We recognize the great love that God has for us. It overwhelms us. Not only do we say, then we love you in return because we give you everything because you gave us everything, but now we love everyone else that you have shown that love to as well. First John 4, verses 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, that's exactly the illustration of this controls, this compels. We're saying the love of God, the love that Christ has for me prompts us into action. So I want to look exactly at that word. It's used multiple times throughout scripture. In this particular example, that word controls or compels means to urge or impel. And it means to urge from an external source, which means... You cannot be compelled by your self-generated love. It has to come from an external source. That external source, the love that Christ has for me and what he's done for me. So now I am urged, I am impelled to action. In Luke 12, 50, Jesus uses this same word, but it has a slightly different intention. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress, that's the same word, distress, until it is accomplished. What it means in that, in that context is how greatly, the word distress is a powerful connotation. And so it means how greatly and sorely something is felt. It also means uh, occupied, like occupied of the soul. In Acts 18.5, it says when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So he was indwelt. It came from the depths of his soul, this, this occupied, this compelled. It's also used in Philippians 1, 23 through 24. It means that you're pressed between or you're impelled from both directions. Kind of this idea that you're fully surrounded. So in the idea of love, the love of Christ, you are so fully surrounded by the love of Christ and it's pressing you from all sides that all you can do is go out with love. Here's what it says in Philippians. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. 
all of those definitions give us this depth of what that word means. It gives us action. Some people say that because of the King James translation of that word, they use the word constraineth. That has this kind of immediate implication of being almost strapped down. That's not what it means. Even though that word may sound like it, it does not mean to be strapped down or held down. It actually means to motivate to inspire results, to inspire action. So because I see the depth and the surrounding nature of God and his love, I respond. That's what the love of Christ compels us means. So here's how I summarize it. Because we understand that God knows us, and in his knowing us, he knows we're guilty. And in knowing we are guilty, he carries out justice. But because of his love, he sent the one, Jesus, the Christ, who satisfied his justice on our behalf. And in knowing that great love that we just described, that not only provided the way for us to be rescued from our sins, but also be looked at by God as blameless, we are therefore compelled. We are urged from our soul of understanding. We are so pressed or impressed from all sides that love comes out of us and we respond accordingly. So Paul, this is, this is what allowed Paul to respond to people when he would say things like, why are you okay with your pain and your trial and your suffering? Why are you continuing? You're basically torturing yourself by continuing to serve God because all it's bringing you is all of this trouble. And this is what equipped him to respond by saying, I received the love of Christ, so I'm compelled to continue. He didn't quit for me. I won't quit for him. That's what this compelled means. Spurgeon says this, the apostles labored much, but all their labor sprang from the impulse of the love of Jesus Christ. Just as Jacob toiled for Rachel solely out of love to her, so do true saints serve the Lord Jesus under the omnipotent constraint of love. The love of Christ had pressed Paul's energies into one force, turned them into one channel, and then driven them forward with a wonderful force till he and his fellows had become a mighty power for God, ever active and energetic. Those are the two realizations that I see from this, that we need to have this healthy fear of the Lord that we need to be controlled, compelled, urged, motivated by his love for us so that we don't just keep it to ourselves. We look at every single person and we realize they have the love of Christ too. Christ acted on their behalf too. And so what those realizations do for us is they give us two responses. And so I want to show you two responses to those realizations. The very first one comes in verse 16. We regard no one according to the flesh. You see, this love that motivates us causes us to properly view others. I mentioned that Christ was regarded to worldly viewpoints and standards, and he was rejected. He didn't fit the standard and expectation of man. Mankind can't ever measure up to God's standard, but we all have our own standard that we use to regard people or view other people. 
And what we need to do is properly view other people. We won't do that unless we understand the great love that Christ has for us. And when you understand the love that he has for us, then suddenly you look at your neighbor and you say, Christ has that love for them and that person and that person. And we start to regard people with the one standard that matters, which is God's. And so we see others from a divine perspective. There's two categories here. One, we see lost souls as lost souls who are dead in their sin. They're dead in their efforts to try to achieve salvation. Lost souls are people who are waiting to be judged by a perfect God, and they will be found empty if they do not have Jesus Christ. And so what this realization does when we see others from that divine perspective is it prompts us to spread the message of salvation, that Jesus Christ died for the guilty so that they can be saved. But there's another perspective. We now, with that right divine perspective, because we understand the love of Christ for us, is we see the redeemed, the people who already know Christ as Savior, as a new creation. We read that in verse 17. It says, you are a new creation. So now suddenly we're looking and we're saying, wow, you're beautiful. You're a new creation in Jesus Christ, just like me. These are people who are redeemed because of Christ. And so we treat them as brothers and sisters, as co-heirs with Christ. And this allows for the proper framework to accomplish what scripture tells us, to handle mistakes with people, to forgive them, to love them, to correct them, to live in unity. And the list goes on and on and on. But without the proper perspective on Christ's love for me, I am not going to regard people in those terms. I'm going to look at them as roadblocks to what I want to accomplish. I'm going to look at them as frustration or emotion, whatever it may be. And suddenly now we get a snapshot of why is my life so tough and why do people annoy me so much? Check the perspective that we have. Is it divine? Are you looking at people through the lens of how God looks at those people, that either they are lost and they are going to die in hell for eternity, and so suddenly my heart for them just breaks and all I want to do is show them Jesus Christ. Or do I look at them as already saved and so we celebrate together because we have this unity of Savior, Jesus Christ, and we can't wait to hear what you're learning, what he's doing in your life, and suddenly all of those things become secondary because love overwhelms us. That is one of the realizations or the responses to the realizations is that we regard people according to how God regards them. We properly treat them according to that love. And the second thing in verse 20, what is a response to these realizations of love? It prompts us not only to love others, to view them properly and have all those things fall into line, but it tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ. You see, this love that motivates us causes us to spread the message of hope to the world. An ambassador is someone that delivers the message of the person or the one who sent him. And he does it with the conviction that he deliver that message effectively, as effectively as possible, as effectively as if the person that sent him was standing right there listening or delivering the message himself. As an ambassador, a country needs an ambassador because people don't always relate to each other. So the approach of an ambassador is careful 
and intentional. They handle themselves with care and confidence so that the message they deliver is delivered properly and it's understood properly. So for us, as verse 20 tells us, we are ambassadors for Christ. As Christ's ambassadors, we are sent by him with his message and out of a great reverent fear and a sense of urgency because we now see people according to the divine perspective, we are going to the lost and telling them about Jesus. We are going to our brothers and our sisters and we're loving them and treating them like family. That is exactly what this talks about with being an ambassador for Christ. As a believer, you carry his message, not your own. You are reminded of your salvation. And so you look at other people with that divine perspective. Are they saved or not? I have this urgency to deliver this message with passion and excitement. I am compelled because I don't ever forget the love that Christ had for me, that he died on the cross, that he overcame death so that I never have to die. And that love that I continually recognize from Christ to me causes me to do something about it. Not just come and sit on a Sunday. Not just attend a weekly Bible study because it checks the list and people see me walk into the church. But to actually, practically go into the world searching for the lost, telling them about Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. So, we share what's happened to us. We share what God has done for us. We share who Christ is to us and who he should be to them because Jesus saves and Jesus alone saves. So what do we say? You may already be thinking, I love what you're saying, but now I don't know what to do because it scares me. I'm not very good with words. How am I supposed to tell someone the most important message in the whole world when I can't even tell you about a story about what I had for breakfast? That's a very real question. And God answers it in a very real way. He doesn't answer it small. He answers it completely. And the question I want to ask before I answer that is, do you equip yourself for this work? Do you know anywhere in scripture that it says, you are alone? I have given you some things to help you accomplish this, but from here on out, you're alone. Go about my work. I don't want to talk to you again. You laugh. How many times during our day do we think that that's the truth? I'm scared to tell that person about Jesus. Okay. Is God with you or not? Did he equip you or not? Did he give you words to say? Did he give you his Holy Spirit to live inside of you to accomplish his work or not? And you may say, that's awfully simplified. That's pretty black and white. You're right, it is. God doesn't say, I'm giving you 12% today of me. I hope you can accomplish what I want you to accomplish. However, we wake up. And how often do we say, God, I'm giving you 12% of me today. I hope that I can still get done what I want to do. But I'm hoping that we can do some things together too. Isn't that more the reality? Because I know that is my reality. That's exactly how I operate. And I need to be slapped every morning, every moment to say, no, God is with me. 
100% filled with the Holy Spirit so that fear takes a backseat to the power and the, the manifestation of God in me. I'm not alone. So this love, I ask the question, do you equip yourself? The answer is no. Because this love that we recognize that Christ has for us, it causes us to rely fully on him. And this is why your personal walk with Christ is so important. Because it's not just about you. Because you are supposed to be affecting the lives of other people for the kingdom of Jesus. You're supposed to be doing things according to his great love that he has for you and that he has for other people. And he gave you everything you need to be his ambassador, his mouthpiece that declares his good news to a lost world, and his mouthpiece that declares love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. So you are quick to forgive. You are easily ready to love them and get along with them because there's something greater, and that is the kingdom of God. So this love causes us to rely on him. And we see it in verse 20. It says, God making his appeal through us. Who's the one that sent us? God. Who's the one that he uses? Us. He's making his appeal through you. Your personal holiness, your personal walk with him is so important. Being filled with the spirit is so important because his presence pours out from you so that you can be effective you can rightly handle the message of the one who sent you as his ambassador. You are his mouthpiece. Our words should be regarded as his announcement to those who need reconciliation, to those who need to hear about Jesus Christ. Your words should be so effective at declaring Jesus Christ from Scripture, from what he's done for you because he lives inside of you, that you are a comfort to those in need that you bring a message of hope for the whole world. There's no one excluded. And your excuse that maybe I don't like that person doesn't matter because God sent Jesus Christ to die for that person that maybe you don't like. And this is really difficult because we, we get in the way of the Lord so much. And the reason this is so powerful for me and these next 10 weeks of going through the characteristics of a Christian life what are we compelled to do? These things are so important because I see it in my own life the amount of times that I make excuses. And I really make the excuses right to God himself. I don't feel like it. That person rubbed me the wrong way. I'm tired today, so I don't want to do that. And all of these things, I'm basically telling the Lord, I love being your ambassador. I love feeling the love that you give to me but that's about all the further I want to go. Because right now I'm a little bit more important. And if I feel like I'm really pounding this home to you, it's the Lord speaking it to me, and maybe you just are along for that ride. But how serious are we? How serious are we that next week we're going to come prepared to learn all of the details of what the Lord is going to teach us and how it's going to change our lives? How prepared were you today to hear a message from the Holy Spirit that reminds you of really what your standing is without Jesus, but maybe as a believer, you were reminded today of the great love that he has for you, and now you're saying, that does compel me. I want to do something about this. That's the purpose. So for the rest of this series, we're going to explore 10 results of being compelled by the love of Christ. So each week, 
you're going to have the opportunity to evaluate how you have allowed the Holy Spirit to transform those areas of your life and where you need to allow him to continue to work. The goal by the end of this series is that we will be a stronger body of Christ. You will be a stronger follower of Christ individually. And by the end of this, we can evaluate if we've been treating each other with more love, care, understanding, whether or not we're loving God more effectively in our everyday life. Are we burdened to serve now more than we ever have? Are we burdened to give, to be thankful, to share the message of Christ with the lost? That is the goal of all of this. I hope, I hope that we are all along for this ride because I think that the Lord is gonna do great things when we start recognizing simply first the great love that he has for us. So much that he gave Jesus Christ, his only son, so that he would go to the cross and die for our sins, giving us eternal life, guiltless, blameless, faultless before the throne. That's the great love that Christ has for us. And when we recognize that, we are compelled to act. I love it. Let's interact. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm going to stomp on your heart. I'm supposed to love them too? What about that, Pastor? Yes. Scripture tells us yes. You can't. You're right. You cannot love them. The Holy Spirit loves them through you. You are an ambassador of Christ, verse 20, and it tells us he is making his appeal through you. It's not your appeal. It's him. Your personal walk with the Lord, if you are struggling with those things, if you can't do those things, then you are exactly where he needs you to be to recognize that it's not about you, it's about him. It's about his presence in you. And it's not to dismiss the fact that maybe it seems impossible, right? This seems so difficult and so hard. How do I flesh this out? Because I've been hurt. Christ died. That's how hurt he was. That's how rejected he was. So can we successfully navigate this life? Yes, because if we can't, and we can't do it for his glory, then scripture is wrong. Because it tells us that we can. And it tells us that we can do it effectively through his power, not our own. Yep. Let's face it. Let's face it. Head on. There are people in the church, there are elders, there are pastors who can facilitate those types of things because maybe it's not that productive for you to just go to a person and hash it out with them because that can get dangerous because then all of a sudden we start to get emotional and we start to let ourselves take over. But if we are looking biblically how to handle confrontation, how to handle sin with one another, Scripture tells us all about that. 
The Holy Spirit guides us to understand Scripture to do it. There are people in this church that are skilled in those areas. So we stop dismissing those things and having niceties on a Sunday morning. We start saying, I love you so much because Christ loves me so much that we owe it to each other to get past this, to get through this, so that we can have a harmonious interaction, which Scripture tells us live in harmony with one another. There's answers to all of it because God is complete. He doesn't leave us set aside to do it under our own work. But stepping on toes, we are usually the problem. Not usually. We are the problem. God is not the problem. Him giving us an incomplete handbook for life, if you want to simplify it that way, is not the problem. Him saying, I'm going to give you 12% today is not the problem. It's us. And that sounds so mean, but think of the great love he has for us that said, I'm giving you everything that you possibly need to glorify me and to do this effectively and rightly. That's the great love that we talk about. That's the love that didn't sit up and say, you know what, I'm going to let them figure it out. I am going to go in person to them and give them everything they need, including my life, because they are dead without me. That is the God that we serve. That is the Christ that compels us, that love, to solve those things and to do even harder things. It's not easy. Paul didn't have it easy. But he looked the people in the face that said, why don't you give up? Why don't you stop? This is so hard. You're going to end up dying. And he says, it's because of Christ. He gave me everything. I'm going to give everything to him. And giving everything to him means that we give everything to each other in love, in care, in forgiveness, in repentance, so that we stop having those nicety interactions and we start living the real life of Christ every day. There was a song earlier that illustrated this point perfectly. Because of being overwhelmed by his love, because of bending beneath the weight of his love and mercy, it said this, I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory. It doesn't mean you don't know about those things, but when your perspective is on glory and what he has done for you, it suddenly gives you the proper understanding of these afflictions that you have. They're eclipsed by glory. And I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. God really loves us. And so as we close, I want to ask you one question. What compels you? In every situation, in everything that you come into contact with, whether it's really difficult things like Jonas described and the reality of that struggle, or maybe it's something simple that you're trying to fine-tune in your life and you're asking yourself, what compels me? What am I compelled by in this moment, in this reaction? If the answer isn't the love of Christ, it needs to be. That simple. Our personal walk with Christ is critical Mine is critical. Yours is critical for the success of not just the church here, but for Jesus Christ touching lost souls that need to hear it. For restoration to happen within the church where people have disagreements or problems. The health of the church is about the glory of God. So what compels you? Let's pray.
Father, we come before you. We submit ourselves to your teaching. We submit ourselves to your great love. Lord, as we've seen today, it's tough. It's difficult. Some of these things that we're talking about are so personal and so emotional that we are just burdened to the point of being buried and we don't know what the next step is. Lord, for those situations that people might be in today, that they feel buried, they feel smothered, they have no place to breathe, would you penetrate that situation, Lord, and would you give them that breath of who you are? You don't abandon us. You don't leave us. In fact, you gave us everything, and you continue to do that. So that in all things, even though some are going to be easier to navigate than others, when we compare them to the power of God, nothing stands a chance. Would you heal our emotions? Would you give us a fear, a healthy fear of who you are? But would you allow us to not be scared of going to a brother and a sister in Christ and finding reconciliation? Would you show us right now that no matter what maybe excuse we may have or what fear we may have or whatever else people are filling in the blanks with today, that you, God, are more powerful, that you gave us your Holy Spirit, not just as a guarantee of what we are going to have someday, but right now to work through us for your glory because we are your ambassadors. And your love looks different than our love. And we want to claim today that we are compelled by your love so that what we do looks like you. Would you bring healing where there needs to be healing? Would you bring inspiration because of your great love to everyone in this place today so that now we can move forward knowing that we are compelled by the right thing and that is your great love for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name.